0: So I, I've been asked to do cancer screening, obviously a big topic, um, but we'll try the best uh, we can to get uh, through it, and I'm going to start with any talk with cancer screening starts with the United States Preventive Service Task Force. They are what guide us. The one thing I want you guys to know is that they are independent, they're not federal employees. I think there's a, a misconception about that. Um, and Uh, They're primary care based, they're um, evidence based rather than expert opinion. Um, The the caveat about the task force that I think sometimes gets misunderstood is it really only talks about asymptomatic patients. Okay, so is a service, a screening to be offered routinely to people who are presenting to us for well visits or for checkups or on a population basis. So um, the corollary is, when people have symptoms, we can't use look, use the task force to guide us about what to do. And the other thing is, the task force or guidelines, and you and your patients may have good reasons to not follow the recommendations. So I like, whoops, um, I I hate to be coercive in screening um, because when we're dealing with patients who have symptoms and they come to us. They're trying to collaborate with us to, to feel better. When patients are when we're saying, hey, you should be screened for condition X or Y, what we're really saying is that by doing that, you're going to feel better or live longer if you submit to this screening. And so we want them, you know, we want that to actually happen and not to cause harm to them. Um, the ideal screening test should probably go over this in medical decision making, but we're looking for serious conditions with high prevalence an asymptomatic period when we can detect the disease. We've got to show improved outcomes. There's no reason to find some of the cancers we're gonna talk about because the outcomes don't get improved. We want it to be sensitive and specific. Um, the tests and the treatments, acceptable patients, and the benefits far outweigh the harm. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, again, you guys go over this, but I'd like to think about lead time bias, flank time bias, and overdiagnosis when I'm looking at uh, cancer screening. So lead time bias is that concept that maybe through screening all we're really doing is detecting cancer earlier and not prolonging life. And all we're doing is make that patient live longer with the knowledge that they have cancer. Whereas length time bias really refers to tumor biology biology, where aggressive indolent cancers are more likely to be found by screening, Aggressive cancer is more likely to be found by symptoms, and so screen-detected cancers appear those people appear to do better, but really what we're talking about is um, tumor biology. It has nothing to do with the screening. All right, so overdiagnosis, a little different concept. It's identification of precursor lesions or early-stage cancers that are never going to harm our patients. okay? But once we find them, there seems to be an inexorable um, move to treatment. It's really hard not to uh, not to treat this once they're found, and we all know the potential harms of that. So, um, let's. We're not going to talk a lot about about this, but let's let's um, about the the, in, the cancers that the task force endorses for screening. I think you guys all know them, um, but what we can do is it, it, there's some nuances to this with the screening guidelines, you can say, okay, well, breast cancer is a, an A or B recommendation, but it's really an A, it's a C, and it's an I, all right? And that depends on what age group you're on, right? A for yeah, 50 to 74, a C for 40 to 49, and then I is what? 75 and older. Okay. And then also for anything like MRI or ultrasound or tomosynthesis. Okay? So, so there's some nuances to this, and you can find if you don't have this app, you should download that. That's that's I think everybody has that, but if you don't, download it now, because that's not just cancer screening, it's going to be other screening modali- modalities here. Okay, so again, uh, for cervical, cervical can be here, right? Or it can be here. (laughs) Okay? And again, you guys know this. So cervical would be A A to B is going to be what? What age? 2165, right? And here it's going to be less than 21, right? Excuse me. Yeah, less than 21 or um, greater than 65 who's been who've been screened before. Okay. So and then you can go down. You know, you know we can get colon here, and colon is also a C for some our older individuals. And then you're going to have lung here for specific age groups. Okay. Um, but let's let's talk about some other cancers that were the task force either has has different recommendations on. So you guys, we had a talk about bladder cancer recently. Predominantly a a disease of men, 90% of those occur in in older people, 55 and older. Um, Average age of diagnosis is over 70, and you've got the risk factors, everybody knows tobacco use, being a male, being Caucasian, and then some other things that are less frequent, but chronic bladder irritation is one that I want you guys to be aware of. What does the task force say about it? Anybody have a guess? Screen, not screen? indeterminate. Oh, there, sorry. (laughs) There are famous people who died of bladder cancer, and so the task force says, yeah, I. Okay? So bladder cancer is an I. Why would bladder cancer be an I? I mean you can screen with urine cytology, cystoscopy. so we've got ways of screening, okay, but what it really is is there's no evidence, we don't have evidence that those who are screened have better outcomes because a lot of these are trans, are superficial cancers um, and then you got to recall lead time and length time bias, okay. So for length time bias, an aggressive invasive bladder cancer It's probably not gonna be detected by screening, it's gonna look worse, and then all these superficial cancers that maybe are detecting by screening are gonna look better. So it's an eye, uh, you know, you might decide to, um, now, again, it doesn't, the task force does not tell us what to do with symptomatic patients, so those with gross hematuria, microscopic hematuria, persistent irritative symptoms, especially the patient who's had frequent urinary tract infections, some of the cultures are positive, some are indeterminate. They keep coming back to you to see them for for symptoms like dysuria or urinary frequency. You know, maybe they should be worked up for bladder cancer. Okay, even if they're female. Okay. All right. All right. Next, we got oral pharyngeal cancer. This is a, a pretty uh, nasty one because 50% are metastatic. With the, at the time of diagnosis. What do you think the task force says about that? Where would we put that? <coughs> Better check my notes, so I'm not cheating you Fine, anybody, anybody venture a guess? It's actually an I, okay? <coughs> All right, so we don't know, we don't have good studies to say that we should screen that, and that's, but I think, you know, on the other hand, is that, um, oh, here's some famous people who've died of oral and cranial cancer, okay? Um, it doesn't mean don't ever, okay? So you can look, it's very easy to look in the mouth and feel the necks of her patients when they're coming in for physical examination, especially with smokers, okay? so. Again, I does not mean never. Questions about that? I think it'll be really interesting. It won't happen in my career, but in your careers, are we going to see a drop off in pharyngeal and oral cancer because we've been immunizing people against high risk HPV? That would be really, really cool if that happens. But we can't tell patients that that's a guarantee yet. All right, All right next one. So, what do we do? We have over here. Ovarian. This is a scary one. Okay, look at the 22,000 new cases, and a very high percentage of these women will go on to die from this. One in a hundred lifetime risk of dying of ovarian cancer. It's the most likely gyn malignancy to be fatal. Um, and when you guys are prescribing Depo-Provera or oral contraceptives, or people are getting pregnant, or they're breastfeeding. They're they're having the advantage of lowering the risk of ovarian cancer. So, what do you think? What what does the task force say about screening for ovarian cancer? Where would you put it? It's bad, it's a bad disease. D. All right. Why? So, oh, first we have to say famous people who have died, women. Gilden Radner, one of the funniest women ever, Um, so anybody know who Rosalind Franklin is? DNA. DNA, right, exactly. Okay, so the prevalence is low. When you have low prevalence, you have an increased risk of false positive screening tests. A high false positive rate, increased harm from unnecessary surgery, so most women with a positive screening test actually do not have ovarian cancer. So the uh, task force goes on to say it doesn't matter whether it's CA125, whether it's ultrasound, whether it's by manual examination or a combination of that. What they do, though, say is, and I Dr. Moyer alluded to this at her grand rounds last week, if, if they have bad family histories, they should be screened with a risk assessment tool. Do they ha- could they have the BRCA1 or 2, and should they get genetic counseling? But even then, I don't know that those women do better with screening. What they have to make a decision is whether they want prophylactic uforectomy. Okay. Alright, next one up. So, ovarian cancer. Oh, keep it in mind, again, it, it's, it, it's not... It, the password doesn't tell us how to treat or evaluate symptomatic patients. But please keep it in mind when you're faced with a woman who comes in, say she's postmenopausal. And all of a sudden, she's got IBS-type syndrome. She's bloated, she's irregular regular bowel movements, lower abdominal pain, just doesn't feel well in her belly. Okay, People don't present with IBS in their middle age and later. IBS is diagnosed early, um, you know, teenage years, early adulthood. Think about ovarian cancer for those women, okay? All right. Next scary can- cancer is pancreatic cancer. I've had several patients of mine recently uh, who've been diagnosed with this. So this is an equal opportunity cancer, one to one ratio, male to female, fourth leading cancer, uh, <clears throat> cancer cause of death. You can see the risk factors up there. Actually, BRCA one and two are risk factors. Uh, some polyposis, cancer syndromes, factory use family history. But 80% of these folks have no, uh, who were diagnosed have no genetic predisposition, there are Danish people who have died of pancreatic cancer. Oh, I blew it. Okay, it's a D recommendation. Why? It's just, again, no evidence that even with early detection on pancreatic cancer, folks folks do, do poorly. Okay, so we do not screen for them, screen them for pancreatic cancer, but we do need to be aware of when to look for it. All right, we're obligated when patients have symptoms Okay? One that I thought was really interesting reading when I, I prepared for this talk, this is on actually Dr. Milton's um, uh, video textbook. Sudden onset of difficult to control diabetes, um, type two diabetes in somebody who's standing, um over 50, is to think about it then. Okay? And then you've got physical exam findings. Has anybody felt a crevasse gallbladder? Pretty I think I felt one, maybe two. For so sign is recurrent superficial phobitis, and then there's uh, the peripheral node. Okay. All right. All right. So we're going to put pancreatic cancer here. <coughs> just because the outcomes are poor, and um, uh, we, we just don't have any evidence to screen to do better. All right. What do we got next? Uh right. Here's one prostate. Big disease burden for men, 170,000 cases, over 31,000 deaths, second leading prostate cancer-related death in men. But the lifetime risk of being diagnosed <coughs> is substantially higher than actually dying from prostate cancer. So what's our what's the task force say about prostate cancer? What? C. C. I hear C, I hear B. It's actually C for men 55 to 69 and D for 70 and over. Okay? All right. Um, I think you guys oh who who's died of prostate cancer? A lot of people, but there's some famous people. So, here's the, the recommendations, okay? It's with PSA, it's not with digital record examination. Now, DRE can inform how you interpret a PSA, but there's no reason to do digital record examinations routinely for people coming in for their annual physical. Um, here's the story on it. This is kind of some data that, it, If I think a man wants to hear about this, we can talk. So I say, you screen a a 1,000 men uh, for, and I say 10 years, you might find 40 cases of prostate cancer. And you'll prevent one death in those 1,000 men. And you'll probably uh, prevent another couple from developing metastatic prostate cancer. But what are the harms? What are the harms you have to talk to about men before you draw a PSA on them? False positives, even a biopsy, 1% of people who get biopsies result in hospitalization, usually like a urosepsis type picture, okay? And then overdiagnosis. When you're finding prostate cancer based on screening, maybe as much as 50% of those would never affect a man and they're during their lifetime. So, and then if they go on to treatment, um, the treatments have significant harms as well. Okay, I think sometimes for men it would be less an issue of uh, of uh, erectile dysfunction than it would be of incontinence of urine, having to wear pads for the rest of your life. Okay, so it's tricky, and you got to sort of develop a a little pattern of, if, and it's got to be shared decision making. Are you interested, you need to bring it up between men, with men 55 to 69, do you want to get screened? Do you understand what, what screening can do and might not do? Do you understand the harms of it? I, I turn and um, I say, hey, listen, if you're type A about your health and you want to know all the numbers, you probably want to have a PSA test. If you're a, hey doc, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of guy, and you want as little, to, you know, some of these guys who, come in every other year because their wife forces them to come in and they want as little contact with me as possible. they probably don't want to be screened. okay On the other hand, when, when I've had conversations with those guys and I have two guys now who have declined screening, and now they have um, they've had symptomatic prostate cancer, and they're, they're they're being treated for it. Um, with screening found them any any earlier, I don't know. but that's that's the risk of not being screened is you can end up, with metastatic prostate cancer, the risk of screening is that you can end up being treated for a cancer that would never kill you and um and have cause you harm. No question about that. Yeah. I've had that conversation with a couple people and then their answer is, well, I don't know, you decide for me. And I push back to them and I say, I that's not my decision to make. Okay? You really you really have to do it because you're the person who's going to have to live with it. Okay. Or they'll ask you, doc, they'll say, doc, what, what would you do? Okay. And I'm old enough to where it's an issue for me. And if I know the patient well enough, I'll say, I'll tell them my answer. i say, no, I, I've, not cho- I've chosen not to get a PSA, but that's as much my personal philosophy as it is a statement of science. Yeah, and then if they decide, if they're forcing you to decide, then I guess that's, um, in essence to me, that means they don't want to get screened, but I think that's your call at that point. Okay, let's see, let's go real quickly through a couple other. Skin cancer, when we're talking about skin cancer screening, we're really talking about trying to find melanomas, however, as, yeah, Famous person who died of melanoma, Bob Marley, uh, from acro lentiginous melanoma, which can affect African-Americans. This is an eye recommendation. There was one ecologic study in Germany that found a reduction in melanoma deaths and, and when they compared regions of being screened or not. Um, so, yeah, it's an eye and it really, you're, what you're finding a lot on skin cancer screenings, you're finding basal cells and act and keratosis are melanoma in two. Suggestion that, as we find more melanoma in two, we're really just over-diagnosing it. Um, so, but, you know, people say, hey, doc, can you look at the skin lesion? We're looking at their skin for other reasons, because they've got venous insufficiency, or we're looking for systemic, uh, skin manifestations of systemic disease. So I think you can look at your skin during a, a routine physical examination, you know, F- once in a while, you'll pick up a melanoma and that will save a life. So, insufficient evidence, again, you can use shared decision making, but I try to do it. Even if you don't have people completely on the road, as you lift their, they're sure to look at their back. Uh, melanoma can occur, especially in women, on the back of their, on their backs or backs of their legs. And they're not looking at that in the mirror, they're not aware of it. So, it'd be worthwhile looking. Okay? Health Maintenance has a has a thing can, yes. and it's not based like evidence, it is like a study that ben is doing. Yes, so and, I and, and they pushed it hard. and I've sat on the committee and I've argued against that being put on as health maintenance, um, but it's there. And it was, it's sort of a political thing because it's, I've studied the pick had done yeah. yeah, I was gonna say the exact same thing because I don't want you guys to get confused with what's in Epicare, on the health maintenance things, The the um, and Rich sits on the um, committee who establishes what goes on there for reminders, and it's supposed to be only A or B recommendations.. Yeah. And the skin cancer screening, obviously, as we just learned, is not. Um, and it has completely got put on there for a research project that a dermatologist was doing. So feel free if you're okay, <coughs> Yeah, you can take it. You can take it off. Yeah, or you can postpone it or do whatever you want. Okay. Can I also make another plug about the health maintenance tabs? Um, you can change the frequency of screening too. I know a lot of people don't do that, especially with cops. It's like reflex to three years. Yeah. You can change it to five years. Yeah, you can change it. Yeah, that's Same a good idea to know. All right, real quickly, testicular cancer. A D recommendation because treatment produces very favorable results even in advanced cases. I have stopped doing this as part of the routine well male exam, but if there are testicular complaints, keep it in mind, okay? Um, I think I've diagnosed three cases of testicular cancer in my career. Um, One was actually in a guy who was uh, was approaching 50, so it's usually a young man's disease, but not always. When men have scrotal complaints, you know, unless you're dead certain it's epididymitis or, or something else, um, if there's any doubt, there's no harm to getting testicular ultrasound. Okay. And the last one we'll cover is thyroid cancer. Okay. Look, when you start seeing new cases being way higher than deaths, start to think about overdiagnosis. This is what happened in, in South Korea when. They did an ultrasound-based population screening for thyroid cancer. We're finding a bunch of papillary thyroid cancers, there was no effect on thyroid cancer mortality. This is a classic case of overdiagnosis, indolent cancers, um, because we're really talking about papillary and follicular cancers that are the most common. They have a great 10-year survival rate. So no reason to diagnose thyroid cancer or to screen for it. However, if you're feeling a nodule, if you're feeling something that's clinically apparent, I think that's something you are obligated to work out. And we can talk about that another time because we're out of time. Questions? Sorry. I just, something that was confusing to me as a med student and an intern was um, cervical cancer screening in women post hysterectomy. Okay. We could just like review that. So that would be. A D recommendation from yeah, that should also be hysterectomy because for benign reasons. Yeah, yes. for benign. Now, I, you know, I see. Okay, they've had high grade um, cervical neoplasia. Do you screen them for vaginal cancer or for residual cells? I think you do, but I don't know how long that goes on. My uh, understanding from ob standpoint is, if they've ever had an abnormal Pap smear and they had a hysterectomy, you're supposed to do a vaginal cuff Pap for 20 years. I, I think that my guess is that they don't have evidence no, to back that up. That yeah, that's so expert consensus. Okay. okay. It's not for um, like if they had okay. um, and that. And that, the of that. Um, yeah. Okay, we got a break for lunch and let the C people start coming in. Download the app.